It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, caller. You're on the air. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? Good. How can I help you? I just wanted to call and say thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, this is John Edward calling. So humbled that you invited me on your show. Thank you so much and good luck. Thank you. you you're the best. All because right. that's, you are All so right. right. You're right on the teeth. You have not said nothing that I don't know anything about. Your colors are fantastic. That's wonderful. You know, I feel a lot more comfortable. I felt good tuning in. Uh, I just got good energy when the reminder of the show came across my profile. And uh, the fellow hosting it has had really great guests and good energy. And, you know, it it, it feels really good. Uh, May everybody's heart's desires uh, be divinely blessed. Good. Good. Thank you. I want to thank you so much for giving me a chance to be on your show. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Tori, for joining me. Oh, it was a pleasure. We could have done two hours, Michael, you know. (laughs) One more. 
Okay. It is you, dear. Seven two seven. researchers in the field of near-death studies. I began my work in 1978. That means 33 years ago. Um, my research base is nearly 4,000 adult and child experiencers. I'm, I'm, I believe I'm the only one we know of who went out and did their own independent research without knowing anything at all about Raymond Moody or his book, Life After Life. So none of my work is based on that model or based on his particular ideas or the researchers who came after him. Although I know a lot of these researchers, and we certainly have talked a lot, um, I have kept my findings and my models um, central to what I found in the field not central to what I read in a book or read in a research paper. So I guess you could call me a field worker, and I, you know, I, I stay with that voice of the people. And uh, my work is distinguished by that. I'm, a, I'm, hey, I'm a cop's kid. I was raised in a police station. <laughs> My dad started teaching me police investigative techniques at the ripe old age of nine, um, and he was rather um, strict in the way he taught me. So I used that protocol as mine when I began my work. That is to say, I do not use questionnaires unless it's after the fact. I never um use leading words or questions at all. In fact, I don't use any words at all unless the individual uses them first. All you can say is, did anything happen to you? And that's all you can say until the experiencer then begins to formulate their narrative. Um, and then... Um, 
uh, do a lot of observation work. Your body, in fact, says more than your mouth does. So if you know what to look for, and I did, um, then you certainly are very careful in your observation work. Then whenever I could, I would meet with the um, significant others as many times as possible uh, in as many different cases as possible because I wanted a well-rounded view of what was possibly going on. You know, the experiencer says one thing, is that upheld or challenged or, um, you know, what what does the family think? What does the caregivers think? What do the neighbors think? What do the children think? What do the spouses think and loved ones and so forth and so on? So, and then you take your work and you test it again and again in different parts of the country, different types of people, um, and on and on and on. And I've been doing that kind of intense work for 33 years. And um, it, it, it it was time to retire, retire in the sense that I no longer do active field work. So this is my last hurrah if you want to put it that way, it is um, my book. Well, you know, Michael, it's the book where I finally gave myself permission to say what I never dared to say before. So the book is um, deep. It goes right to the issues, and it pulls near-death research out of where it currently is sort of waves a red flag and says, yoo everybody, we're forgetting some stuff, we're missing some stuff, we're really not getting to the true issue. So one of the, uh, the biggies that I establish in the book is that near-death experiences are not any kind of anomaly. Rather, they are part of the larger genre of transformations of consciousness. Um, you know, the only reason we think they are unique, so to speak, is that they happen mostly in hospitals or on the accident scene, you know, uh, those kinds of environments where we have recording equipment, measuring equipment, trained observers. Um, So we have a more scientific way of approaching that 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 um transformative experience and 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 we focus very heavily on that scientific um aspect as well we should but we're missing something when we do that and what we're missing is the larger experience and the deeper experience and 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 we're not really looking at transformations of consciousness what they are why we have them and where they lead us. So I really I really jump into that in this book. <laughs> Q&A session yes. started. Yes, you definitely do. It's a very um enjoyable book, very informative too. So, uh you also talk about out-of-body experiences in it. Well, certainly that that's that's one of the elements of the near-death experience. The, the first half of the book is where I summarize 
uh, my work in near-death studies. Um, chapter 16 is the shift. Um, the name of that chapter is the key. The key is intensity, and that really is the key. And, and we're not really looking at that. We're not looking at the stress factor. We're not looking at the intensity factor. And that's the main key that turns the lock into this larger story. And so the second half of the book is the larger story where we're getting deeper into the brain, deeper into what is called the deep structures, and certainly deeper into the into the spiritual part. And, and, and we've got to do that because near-death experiences really are spiritual experiences. So we, we have to... You know, um, we have to do more than just tiptoe around that subject. So if you're talking about near-death experiences specifically, then you're talking about the main elements in the experience. The, um, you know, the, the one that is the most reported is, out, is the out-of-body experience. And then that incredible light and then a greeter of some kind. Those are the three main ones that most people will have. The rest of it, uh, people don't have that many. Um, they'll, they have a, a number of people will have a life review. Not that many have a tunnel. Um, really, it, it's a myth that the, the tunnel is a signature feature of near-death states because it's not. You can trace reports of a tunnel back to that time when the media sensationalized Raymond Moody's first book. Well, we didn't have them before then, or or we didn't have that many. In uh, Gallup Poll's first scientific survey, for instance, in 1982, there were only 9% of the people that reported it. We didn't get that many reports for several years, again, until the, the media had really sensationalized his book. And what are the statistics? How many, you know, what are the uh, differences of people that experience uh, the near death, the phenomena and all? Well, if we're talking worldwide, general population is 4 to 5%. If we're talking just that emergency environment, hospital environment, uh, that kind uh, of focus on environment, then it's um, a conservative estimate is 12 to 21 percent. There are some people going around saying it's 25 percent. Some people are saying it's 30 percent. Um, those are only based on maybe one or two uh, studies. They're, they're, uh, they're not looking at the larger, you know, amount of them, the amount of these studies. And if you look at the larger studies, uh, then you come to find out that it really isn't quite that large yet, but you know, 12 to 21 percent is still a, you know, a pretty big, big chunk of folk. Yeah, that is uh, that is quite a few people uh, that experience it. What about for children? Oh yeah. What do they normally <laughs> experience? Uh, well, bear in mind when we're talking kids, we're talking birth trauma. A lot of cases come from birth trauma. We're talking uh, before birth, especially uh, the third trimester. 
so we can get reports from that age, um, from being born, from toddlers, infants. Uh, when these children are old enough um, to really talk about it, be, for, be proficient at language at all, draw pictures, you know, any of this kind of of reporting, then we find out that kids um, have the same type of experiences that adults do, um, and they and and they deal with the same after effects. So if we're talking figures on kids, there's never been Michael. There's never been a scientific study or survey done on child experiencers. Never. They, they've all been adults. So it, it you know. You know, we have to kind of wiggle a little bit on that one. Um, the only um, uh, the only one I can point out is the work of Dr. Melvin Morse, who's a pediatrician, and I, I believe also a neurologist. And he claims that it's up around 70%. So children would be more apt to have a near-death experience you know, in the same given kind of condition than an adult would. So it would be easier for a child or, or, you know, they seem to have more of them. Uh, But, again, we have to kind of wiggle here because that's just one person, and that's that's based just on his work. If you're going to come up with broad percentages, then you have to look at, again, the broader studies. Okay. And now what made you decide to go ahead and do this research? <laughs> You're getting personal, Michael. <laughs> well, that's um, what's well, a good part about you know, the interviews. <laughs> <laughs> well, I died three times in, in three months in 1977. <laughs> I went through them. I had them. had three in three months. So, And then my third one... Um, I reached that level, which we in we in research call the, the level of all knowing. A lot of people get there, you know. Where you have the revelations, um, finding out answers to the big questions. You know, th- this is the big stuff, and and I got there too. And my um, visit, if you will, or journey, if you will, in that particular dimension or level included um, being able to see creation, how it works, what creation really is. And while I was there, a voice spoke. And it wasn't like you and me talking. (laughs) I mean, this voice was so powerful it's like the universe talking to you. You know, it's like all of creation talking to you. And and this voice said, and I quote, test revelation. You are to do the research. One book for each death. It named books two and three. It did not name book one. It, it um, told me what all of this meant and what was to be in each book. It did not tell me how to do the work or how long it would take me. So I can honestly say that the reason I'm back is to do this work. And now that I've <laughs> been doing it for 33 years, um, well, I got another assignment last spring that there were six more books I'm supposed to write. So, yeah, you know. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll definitely be busy. 
Yeah, here I go again. <laughs> but it, but at least it, they will not be on near death. I that part, that mission, that job that I was to do is now finished. And I know that for certain. You know, I can talk about it, I can be a consultant. Um, I can work work in the field in the sense of being present in the field, but I'm not doing any more research on near death. Um, near de- uh, near death experiences. The rest of the story, again, really is my last hurrah on this particular subject. And what did they help teach you about living? Oh, <laughs> you're gonna be here all night. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting cute. <laughs> oh, what did it teach me about living? It's like what it didn't teach me. Um, jeez, it taught me how the world works. It taught me um, our relationship to God, what God is, our relationship to God. Um. It it helped me to understand. Um, I I just don't know words big enough. It it just helped me to understand the larger story, and it it also enabled me to come back. Um, with with other. Uh, revelations or 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 guidances that that helped me to accept everyday life and um coming back into a physical body you know having to go to the bathroom again you know that that's one of the <laughs> that's one of the first oh no's that a, a lot of near death experiencers talk about it's like do i have to go back to that body again you know, and it's like all, all the things that, that we do with our bodies and for our bodies. Um, it, it certainly, you know, one of the things that it was emblazoned across my mind was the fact that forgiveness really is the only protection anybody has because you become whatever it is you cannot forgive. You know, and that is a biggie. Forgiveness is the only protection anybody has because you become whatever it is you cannot forgive. Um, and, uh, you know, these experiences, whether they be just short ones or brief ones or long ones or complex ones, it uh, doesn't matter. They take a full seven to ten years to integrate. With children, I would say it takes about twenty to thirty, maybe forty years, because children don't integrate; they compensate, and it and and, and you know they don't connect the dots. So it takes them a lot longer when they're older to realize what happened to them and how it affected them. Um, so, so these take a long time to integrate, and in my case, uh, one of the advantages I had was that um, I all the thousands and the thousands of eyes 
that I was able to look at and through became like my mirrors. And they mirrored back to me, myself, who I was, what I was doing, and how I could handle what I was facing. So it, they they were just extremely... It was an extremely helpful experience for me to be a researcher. So, you know, I was helped by the people I was researching. Um, you know, and, and, and then just living life and, and doing the research itself enabled me to take what I learned and test it. You know, can I really live this? Can I really... Um, can I put, can I put these guidances to work in my life, or are they just you know inspiring stuff? You know, if if you can't bring it down to scrubbing floors, what good is it? So um, I, I tend to be kind of practical in that regard. You know, if I can't use it, why bother with it? So um, I found that I could use it. But I found that in order to do that, I really had to let go of who I was. I had to really let go of my sense of self and realize that who I was was really so much broader and so much bigger and so much more vast than what I had previously thought. So it enabled me to look at myself differently and uh, to realize that, you know, all of life is really all of me, and it's all of you, and it's all of everybody else. And until we can get a grasp uh, of how that really works and and who we are in that, um, it, 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 you, you kind of tend to get lost or or you or you or you tend to say, well, you know, <laughs> that's really inspiring, but I can't use it in my life, or you know, I can't use it with my spouse or raising kids. Well, the fact is, you can, uh, but your challenge is to integrate it and 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 be able to pull from your experience, all those gems, and, and again, to, to, to put them to work. And um, and that's what I was challenged to do. And it, it, it turned out to be, it turned out to be uh, very frightening. It turned out to be very frustrating. And it turned out to be very, very wonderful. Uh, what was your experience? Because um, you said you had, uh, you know, had near-death experience three times. What was it like on the other side? Well, it was different each time. <laughs> you, you get into different levels. You know, there's all kinds of levels and shifts, and um, people who have near-death experiences don't don't all go to the same place. By no means, nor do they. Um, accept it or, um, you know, have it be a part of their life in the same way or, or interpret it the same way. Um, so we're, we're talking about a very, very vast canvas here. 
uh, where we're going to be painting different kinds of pictures. This is a huge canvas. Um, so bear in mind that each person will gravitate to, be drawn to, or resonate with a particular level or a particular dimension or a particular place that is best for them. That's where they need to go. So in my case, uh, my first one was very, very brief. I had one of those initial experiences. You know, there's, there's four there's clearly four, four models, four, four types. You know, it, it's all one experience in the sense that it's one pattern. But there, there, there's four different types of that pattern. And and the first one then, uh, I call the initial because it's always very short, very brief. Uh, kids usually have have this one, uh, although adults do too. It, you know, it's something like the loving dark or the friendly nothingness or special voice or quick in and out of body experience. Um, in my case, it was a quick in and out of body experience. And I had uh, miscarried. I was pregnant. I miscarried. Uh, I had always birthed my babies, uh, never miscarried before. And this was a, a very, very new experience to, for me. And um, my miscarriage turned out to be um, lots of blood, very painful. Um, I was at home, and when I left my body, I floated up to the top of the ceiling in my uh, bathroom. And 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 for me, in my case, the light turned out to be the light bulb that was on. <laughs> in the bathroom lighting fixture. You know, there was a lot of light in the room, and I cannot say to you whether that was light coming from the light fixture or if it was lighting up from another source. I can only say that I kept bumping into that light bulb like a moth drawn to a flame. You know, I just, you know, <laughs> just kept bumping into that light bulb. Uh, I was drawn to the light. Um, and... You know, it was really a long way down to the toilet and the bathtub and the sink and that difference in space relations. You know, that was that was a biggie for me. I mean, I couldn't figure out why all of a sudden I was floating just within kind of like a um, an eyelash of the ceiling. It's like, what am I doing up here, bobbing along? Um, and there's all that mess on the floor. You know, you don't become Michael. You don't become someone you're not when you die. And <laughs> I tend to be one of those people that, you know, I can see a dirt ball at forty paces. I'm kind of a neat nick. And I look down at that bloody body on the floor, and I there was no way I was going to own up to that body. I mean, forget it. I wasn't about to own up to that body. Uh, so I wasn't interested in the body. I was interested in the difference in space relations and, you know, what was going on. And it's, it's it seemed like around me in the air was all these kinds of blobs. I don't know what else to call them. Um, they were fully dimensional and different shapes, and they were kind of gray, and I didn't like them. And um, 
it seems like the air just filled up with more and more of them, and then there was an audible snap, um, like someone with an overstretched stretched rubber band let go of the rubber let go, and it snapped back. So there was that snap, and I was jerked and pulled back into my body, entering through the top of the head, you know, where your soft spot is for your baby, and being pulled in down to my toes, being pulled all the way down to my toes, and and feeling that I had to shrink to fit back in, that I was larger outside of my body than I was inside of my body. And so back to the pain and back to the mess, um, and yep, yep, I really did it. I cleaned up the mess. <laughs> I did. I didn't. I didn't go to the doctor, and I I didn't go to the telephone and call the doctor. I cleaned up the mess, and then um, to the best of my ability, I went and cleaned myself up and went back to I I went to back to bed, uh, propped up my my legs and uh, stuffed myself, you know, to handle all the bleeding and just went to sleep. And I'm a person who uh, sleeps very heavily, and I can sleep right away. Um, and I did. And it wasn't until the next morning that I realized I was in trouble and I needed to go to a doctor, and, and I did. So that was my first one. It was just an out-of-body, uh, but it had these, um, different features to it, you know. Again, y- you're going to find that this with the different people that you talk to, Michael. Um, there will be uh, the features will differ. You know, again, the pattern is always the same. The pattern is the same worldwide, but the features, the elements in it, will be a little different, and the way they are described will depend on that person's culture. And their and language constraints. So, excuse me there. Um, so you've talked to other. Um, do you usually, when you're on the other side, uh, for talk to a lot of different people, or is it mostly just one you talk to? What do you mean when I'm on the other side? Do I talk to a lot of people? Uh, you know, because uh, you have a greeter. Uh, a lot of times that, that greets people when they go ahead and have the near-death experience. Is that the only person that they speak to, or do you, do they actually talk to other people also? Not everybody you know, other has entities. a greeter. Not everybody has a greeter. Remember, remember that that's the third most reported. So not everyone has a greeter. I never had a greeter in any of my three. Um so so there are some people who do not have greeters, and I was certainly one of them. Um, if you want to know about the greeters, with most people, it will be a loved one who has died and gone on before them. And with children, very often, that's a grandparent or a great-grandparent. You, you get a lot of animals. Very often, it's a pet that has died, uh, previously died, and will will come back as a guide. Sometimes it's an animal that individual individual did not know, 
and was not a part of that person's life. And the animal comes in as a guide. Uh, sometimes you get angels. Sometimes you get bright ones. Sometimes you get religious figures. Sometimes you get people you don't know. Every once in a while, and uh, this doesn't happen that often, but it does happen, every once in a while you will get people who are quite alive that are a greeter. Children have these every once in a while. And in those cases, adult and child, where the living is part of, uh, is a greeter, um, that living individual will stay there. What I've noticed anyway is the living individual will stay there as long as it takes for the experiencer to either relax into the experience or become hyper alert. When that happens, the living greeter leaves and is replaced by someone who is more typical of the near-death imagery and the otherworldly type of beings. So so a living greeter uh, tends to uh, be more specific in the sense of why they're there. They seem to be there uh, to serve this particular purpose with the experiencer. Now, you know, the kind of people you can talk on the other talk with on the other side, again, it varies with experiences. Some people talk to a lot of people, you know, and um, they can uh, be very much a part of all kinds of scenarios. Like, like for instance, some of these people who have these transcendent experiences, these long, complex experiences, Sometimes they wind up in some kind of, of having heavenly college taking lessons. Um, I've, I've run across those before. Um, so it, it can be, you know, it, it can vary very definitely between people. Okay. Uh, you mentioned about living greeters, for especially for children. Who are these uh, living greeters? Well, it could be their favorite teacher or the kid down the block. Uh, with this man I know who had a living greeter, it was a woman who was someone he trusted. This is this was a man who did not trust easily, especially anything that was private or personal to him. He, he was he was not a, a trusting individual. So in his particular near-death experience, the, the first greeter he had was this woman who he could trust. And the, and the fact that she was trustworthy then enabled him to relax into his experience and go deeper into it. When that occurred, she left. She was gone. Um, now in this particular case... I was able to talk to the woman who was in his near-death experience. And she was aware that she was in his experience. Um, She had dreamed um, the same scenario in her dream. Now, now this is rare. Very rarely does a living greeter know that they're a living greeter. 
Um, but in this case, the woman did know. And I found that very fascinating. I was able to talk with, with both of them. Um, but invariably, that, that living greeter um, has a specific purpose, and it's usually something like that. Okay, so this person is um, still living then? So it's almost oh, yeah. like a, an out-of-body yeah. experience see, see, for them? You, you, usually your greeters are the deceased, or they are spiritual beings, uh, religious figures, um, animals of some kind, usually animals that were pets before and have previously died. Um, but every once in a while, you know, you get animals that you didn't know before. With, with children, you get a lot of birds as greeters with children. Um, I've noticed that children seem to draw uh, or resonate with the smaller animals. So you're going to get bunnies, you get turtles. I haven't had anyone with a frog yet, but, but you do get a lot of birds. Um, or maybe kittens, maybe puppies, uh, or the smaller animals. With adults, you get the larger animals. However, with adults, um, I've run across a lot of adults who had birds also. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I find it absolutely fascinating. And um, adults seem to draw a lot of the four-leggeds, uh, the larger ones. So we're getting a, a larger dog, um, maybe a cow. We get cows or bulls in some of them, usually a cow, uh, sometimes a horse, sometimes a lion. Uh, but sometimes, you know, uh, it's their pet that they previously had, and it might be a small pet. Uh, but usually an adult will have a larger animal and a child will have a smaller animal. And I kind of wonder myself, if this being takes on that particular countenance or that particular shape so as not to upset or frighten or confuse uh, the experiencer. Uh, because if if you look at little kids, if their greeter is going to be a big horse, they'll probably scare the kid. So naturally, the the child will be more drawn to something like a puppy or a bird. Um, that doesn't mean that that being is necessarily either a bird or a puppy. Uh, it could be a spiritual being that took on that shape. So, uh, you know, this is not something we can prove. This is not something we can verify. Uh, but it's something I have noticed and so I'm willing to talk about it. Well, good. That's why we have you here, so we can find out more. <laughs> You're sneaky. <laughs> now, you you wrote about in the book also there was one gentleman there. I guess he was physically dead for a long time. No, oh, you must be talking about and, George Rodanaya. Yeah, I'm not it, sure of his that, name, but I remember reading in the book uh, he was he was dead for quite a while and woke up in the morgue. Yeah, yeah, that's George, George Rodanaya. He has since passed away, by the, uh, by the way. He's uh, no longer with us. Uh, but he was a communist dissident when that was not cool. He lived then in Tbilisi, Georgia, 
and he was a physician. He was a doctor. He was married, had two children, boy and a girl. And he had been making arrangements to get out of Russia, get out of the uh, Soviet Union. And he had uh, finally made connections in Texas with a Methodist group. And they were his sponsors. And they were going to get him and his family out of the Soviet Union. That's when we still had the Iron Curtain there. That was long before uh, Gorbachev and Putin. Um, And the uh, cars had come to take his wife and his children uh, to Moscow, and then they would leave from Moscow to Texas. Then the uh, next car came to pick up him, and that car... um, didn't bother to park in the street or even follow the street. It came right up on the curb and right up on the lawn and and aimed right for him and ran him over again and again and again. They wanted to make sure he was dead. It was a KGB, and they were um, very determined that he would not live, that his wife and his children could leave the Soviet Union, but not him. So after they had done their deed, then the ambulance was was called and they took him to the hospital in Tbilisi. Um, he was, of course, dead on arrival and uh, put in a freezer vault. Um, now, we don't know what the temperature was in that vault. Um, but, you know, they called it a freezer vault where they'd freeze the corpse and whenever they got around to taking care of the corpse to do an autopsy, then they would go back and, you know, pull the body back out and kind of, uh, um, you know, warm it up a bit. Um, so he was in the freezer vault for three days. So he was there for quite a while in the, in that freezer vault in the morgue in Tbilisi, Georgia. Now, during that time that he was in the vault, he was very much involved in a very long and complex near-death experience. Um, Bear in mind, this is a scientific man, this is a medical man, and he found it very difficult to believe that there could be light in darkness. In fact, it, he found it very difficult to believe that he could think that he was still who he was after being um, run over so many times, um, you know, no longer able to breathe, no heartbeat, no no uh, no brain waves. Um, he was very much aware of the fact that he was dead, and he was shocked that he was aware. You know, how can I be aware? How can I how can I know that I am dead? And then there was a pinprick of light and he looked at that light and he says, How can there be light in darkness? And when he accepted the light, then his view broadened and he left his corpse and was able to have just uh um, I wish he could have written a book about all the things that happened to him in his experience. He always said he was going to do that, but he never did. 
uh, <clears throat> I wrote about a lot of them. I could only put a few of them in the book. You'll get his case in Beyond the Light. There's a very brief version of it in the big book of near-death experiences. Um, I, I can remember some of the things. I, I, I was able to verify, by the way, what he told me with his wife, Nino, and several other relatives. But anyway, uh, l- l- let's talk about uh, um, when they brought him out. So that that was three days later. They had to do an autopsy because this was very political. So they had an autopsy crew. One of the members of the crew was his own uncle. He had an uncle who was also a physician. And they were doing what is called the T-cut. Now, the top bar of the T is the lower part of the abdomen, and they had cut that open. And they were going uh, up the trunk of the body to make the stem of the T. And they were cutting up, in other words, you know, they, they were cu- cutting open the trunk of the body when his eyes opened. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean much because that could be an automatic response of the body even after three days. So the doctors just shut his eyes and kept cutting. Well, then his eyes opened a second time. Again, they did not take that seriously. So they just shut his eyes and kept cutting. Um, But when he opened his eyes the third time, that's when the the chief of the autopsy team screamed and stepped backward and had to take a one-month leave of absence. And the rest of the team had to take over. <laughs> he couldn't handle it um, because uh, George Rodanaya did indeed come back, and they were all in a state of shock. So they took him into surgery right away, and he had, oh, I don't know how many surgeries. Um, you know, it, 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 it's almost like every bone in his body was broken. I don't know if it was every single bone, but almost every bone and he was just in really bad shape. So he had lots and lots of surgeries. Well, among the things that happened while he he exited his corpse, um, he went to Paris, France. He'd always wanted to go to Paris, France. And so he discovered that he was very mobile, and he could go anywhere he wanted to go. So he wanted to go to Paris, and he was walking along the streets in the main part of Paris and just loving it. And he wanted to talk to somebody. And then there was this woman standing nearby. So he went over to her and started to talk to her. And she didn't, um, you know, pretend like she didn't see him, probably because she didn't. Um, and he found that his hand would go right through her. So he became very frustrated and he yelled in her ear. Now she heard that. And she turned around and looked around, couldn't see anybody, so just kept kept walking. Well, um, that was very disappointing for George because he was hoping that he could talk to somebody or share this experience with somebody and found out that he couldn't because nobody could see him. So he went back to the Tbilisi area, and he found that he could go in um, the brain's of all of his friends. So he did 
to find out if they were a real friend. You know, is this a real friend? I'm going to go into their brain mind assembly, and I'm going to find out, are they really a friend? Uh, What do they really think about me? So he found that he could do that. Another thing that he did, his wife Nino, was picking out the uh, grave spot. And in her mind, as she stood there looking at the grave where she was going to have her husband buried, she went over in her mind a list of eligible bachelors. You know, this is this is a widow. She's got two kids to raise, uh, probably no money. So, um, you know, wh- what to do? So she was going over in her mind the various eligible bachelors and pros and cons about each one, making a list of each one in her mind. Uh, And another thing that happened uh, that I'll share with you is that he knew uh, a friend's wife was about to have a baby, so he went over to the uh, birthing uh, part of the the hospital um, to, to see if she had delivered yet the maternity area, she had delivered. She delivered uh, a little boy, and he was screaming, absolutely screaming, and he went over to the little boy. He says, children can can see um, disincarnates. They, they can see the invisible. They can see ghosts. And he went over to the little child, the newborn, and the newborn could could both see him and hear him, and he told the baby to quit crying, that he would go back to his body pretty soon and tell uh, the doctors what was wrong because he said he could see through that baby's body as if he had x-ray vision, and he could see that the child's pelvis had been broken and that um, the head nurse had dropped the baby and that's why the baby had a broken pelvis. So, meanwhile, back at the ranch, when he's um, when he's in a hospital room now, and um, the doctors are, you know, he's having various kinds of surgeries, and the doctors are making repairs. It takes three days, about three days, for your your tongue to to go di- to go down because. Um, when you die, your tongue swells up and it fills the mouth cavity. So he couldn't talk because his tongue was so swollen, of course, that it filled the mouth cavity. So he had to wait till his tongue returned to normal size so he could speak. And that took about three days. And the first thing he said when he could talk he told the the doctors, go up there and x-ray this child. Now, bear in mind that George was a medical doctor. So he knew what he was talking about, and he knew what to say to these people. He said, you know, this child has has a broken pelvis, and this is why this child has a broken pelvis. So they went up there. They found the child. They x-rayed that baby. The baby had a broken pelvis exactly as described by George. They confronted the head nurse. She admitted that she had dropped the baby, and she was fired. Um, it, it took about a year for um, George to get out of the hospital. And when he did, his wife Nino wouldn't, um, wouldn't have anything to do with him. She wouldn't sleep with him. 
So I was I was asking Nino, I said, you know, weren't you thrilled, you know, to have your husband alive and, you know, now he's home and, you know, you can go on with your lives. And she looked at me kind of funny and she says, no. How would you like to live with someone that can see through your mind and knows everything you're thinking? Um Remember what I said about, you know, she's looking at the gravesite where she's going to bury him, and then she's going over in her mind, you know, all these eligible eligible bachelors and, you know, pros and cons of each one. Well, George, when he could, told her everything he saw through her eyes and all about the men. He named them. The list that she made, he he gave, uh, you know, talked about the pros and cons for each one that he saw in her mind as she was thinking them, and she w- and he was completely correct, and it so freaked her out that it took her over a year to to accept the man and and you know welcome him back in her life. She was just she was <laughs> she was freaked out, Michael. I can imagine. You know, it's like, okay, how in the world did he know all about this information? Yeah, well, he was in her head. He found out that he could get in anybody's head. Uh, Let me see where my where's my notes? Oh, there we are. Okay. Uh, Now, what about people who commit suicide? From your experience, what about people who committed suicide or tried to commit suicide? Because if they did, they wouldn't be here right now. Well, you know, this is, suicide is a big issue, and um, in the Big Book of Near Death Experiences, certainly I have a, I have a chapter just on that, um, because it is such a big issue. When we're talking about near death cases, and and those that come from attempts at suicide. Most of those cases are positive. That is to say, this is, the stories are positive. The narratives are positive. Some of them are really quite positive and uplifting and inspiring. You, you very seldom run across uh, an attempted suicide near-death experience that is really negative or tough or frightening or or just you know really uh really a a, a rough uh case or or rough narrative you, you find the opposite and one of the reasons i kind of suspect at least it's what i've seen uh with with those cases that you know you get this very troubled individual and they uh, and they attempt to kill themselves and they are unsuccessful, you would think that they would have a very morbid or frightening or blah kind of experience. And again, it's just the opposite. And and what I've found is that 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 because it is a hopeful experience, because it is an inspiring experience, it tends to uplift them to the point that they're willing to try again. Uh, so 
know, maybe that's why they had that kind of an experience, to give them the courage to try again or assure them in some way that it was worth doing. Um, but I want to add a little caution here. Uh, be, 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 you know, because this is a very loaded subject, and the caution I want to give is after the near-death experience is over, and we're, and we're dealing now with the after effects, both physiological and psychological. And that's what most people, you know, make light of is, is you know, the people come back with the differences in the personality. They're not looking at the differences in the physical body and the brain and speaking in terms of brain structure. So, uh, so, so we're talking about afterward and how the individual feels then, uh, coming back to life, back to life as always, trying to re-enter society, trying to re-enter their family or their job or, uh, you know, life in general. And is it always that inspiring? Is it always that... Um, easy to come back or at least hopeful. And I and I'm going to have to to say that with adults uh about 5%, maybe a little less than 5%, but right around 5% um attempted suicide after their experience as a way to get back because they felt that life was so tough and so hard to live. And it, it, you know, they just couldn't translate what had happened to them in their experience with what they could actually do in their lives. So, right around five percent of them attempted suicide to get back to the other side because they knew the other side was better than this one, and they'd had it with this one, and so they wanted to go back. Uh, with children, however, it was twenty-one percent. And that is a very, very sobering figure. And we need to really look at how children think. If you want to get deeply into children, I mean deep, 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 you want my book, The New Children and Near-Death Experiences. It was published by Inner Traditions, uh, actually Barron Company, an imprint of, of Inner Traditions. Uh, I get very deeply into this puzzle about 21%. Um, and, and I hasten to say here that children do not integrate their experiences. I don't know of a single one who ever did. Now, you know, maybe there are some. I just never ran across a, of them, never even heard of them. Uh, a child will compensate uh, but they don't integrate. You see, the job of a child is to learn, to grow, to take what is in their environment, in their family, in their life, and use it to help them learn and grow. That's their job. Uh, if If they've got something that happened to them that doesn't fit their environment, that doesn't fit school, that doesn't fit their life, 
and very often a near-death experience does not fit. So a child then will take that experience and either uh, put it on a shelf in their mind or they will deny it or they will tend to forget it or um, they, they will just jumble it up somewhere to where it's uh, it's not something they can easily reach. And so, therefore, it's not until they're an adult, usually uh, in their 20s and 30s, before they um, are surprised that they really did have a near-death experience. Maybe they're reading about it or hearing about it from somebody else or somehow their memory is jogged or, you know, somehow, some way it comes back. And and then and then only do they realize, oh, my gosh, I had one of these. And these after effects, all these differences that I've been displaying all my life that that I thought made me an alien being or a foreigner or weird or, you know, you know, for some reason I don't fit my family because, you know, I have all these strange characteristics. Well, they're really normal because they're normal for a near-death experiencer, and I had no idea they were normal. I thought I was just weird. So, you know... The the integration process for a youngster is really a, a a tough a tough sell. Some of them are able to handle it very well. Those that handle it the best are those kids who are in a very supportive family where the parents are re- willing to listen to them. You know whether they believe them or not doesn't matter. At least they listen to them. They talk to the child. Um, especially if they keep a kind of journal of what the child says, what they do as they grow up, then give it to the child when they're older, say, you know, I think you might want to see this. Um, uh, If they enable that child to work it through, uh, then it becomes a very rich and rewarding experience for the child. Um, Unfortunately, and still today, we don't have psychologists or psychiatrists or counselors or therapists who are trained in how to handle children who had near-death experiences. So, um, And for those professionals who might have had a near-death experience themselves, then they recognize what's going on right away. And they are able to help the child in just really wonderful ways. But if a child doesn't have some kind of support somewhere, uh, it can be a it can be a, a you know kind of a tough thing to to be able to handle this. And and so why would a, a child 21 percent you know attempt suicide to get back to the other side? Well, obviously they know the other side is better than this one. But also we need to understand how a child thinks. A, a, a child thinks this way. They were in this very bright world with the bright people or the wonderful people or where all this love was, and but they weren't breathing. And now that they're breathing again, 
they're not in that world anymore. They're in a very, very different kind of world that's not as loving and it's not as bright and it's not as beautiful. So in a child's mind, they'll think to themselves, okay, how do I get back to that very loving, beautiful world? Oh, oh, I know how I do it. I stop my breathing. Then I'll go back. You see, a child doesn't think of uh, killing themselves or or death as wrong. Uh, a child's logic is, I need to get back to where this beautiful world is, and the way to do that is stop my breathing. So one of the things, I have a very large resource section in the back of that book, The New Children and Near-Death Experiences. And one of the things I teach parents to do is to have visualization sessions with their children. In other words, teach their children uh, that are experiencers to visualize that beautiful world and through the visualization process be able to go back and visit that world. In other words, they don't have to kill themselves to get back. You know, wherever you have once been in mind, you can return to. So to be able to teach that child that they can do it, but always with that little extra kind of caution in teaching the child that that uh, you don't want to stay there and you don't want to go back too often. It's all right to go back once in a while, uh, but you don't want to go back too often because the more important life, the bigger life, is the one that you're living right now. So you can take what you learn from this other place and you can bring it forward into your present life and you can use it. Um, you know, it can be a guide for you. It can be a help for you. But just don't dwell too much in the other world. And you know, if you've got parents who are willing to do this, or a relative, let's say it's grandma or granddad, might be an aunt and uncle. Um, that makes all the difference in the world for a child. Um, it just um, really does. In, in my research with kids, uh, you know, I've already said 21% attempted suicide, get back to the other side, and that was within 10, ten years. Um, some of them tried right away, but usually they wait a little while. Uh, but one-third of them turned to alcohol. And and I'm talking little kids here who are becoming alcoholic or drinking a lot. And um, one of the reasons that, that were the, the most reported, the most repetitive, that these kids would say over and over again is they got solace from the alcohol because they had a hard time with their peer group, with their age mates, talking about anything, um, the kids would make fun of them or they'd bully them or they'd criticize them or embarrass them or whatever. And and they'd get so frustrated because they'd want to talk. You know, a very, very common thing with children, also uh, fairly common with adults but not as much with kids, is to be able to see the disincarnates, you know, what you might call a ghost or uh, the invisible world. 
and um, sea angels and this kind of thing, and they'd, they'd be talking to a disincarnate and everybody else looking around and not seeing anybody. But yet this child is in a very animated conversation. Um, and especially in hospitals, if you've got a youngster in a hospital who's had a near-death experience afterward, invariably that child is going to see those people who had previously died in that room um, or maybe on that floor of the hospital, and they're going to see these beings. So I would say to nurses and doctors, be prepared for that because this is um, this is commonplace. Um, adults can see them too, but you know, children seem to be more open in that regard and willing to talk about it uh, more easily. And they'll be talking to all these beings who have died there, and and um, the nurses and the doctors are very puzzled. Yeah, I'm sure they would be, because a lot of them, uh, from what I've talked to, a lot of nurses and doctors. Some of them don't really have uh, a belief, uh, you know, that people can see spirits and all. So to hear anything like that would definitely be amazing to them. Well, this is why uh, for for the medical people especially, uh, I recommend the big book of near-death experiences because there is a chapter in there just for the medical people. Um, and there's a lot of things in that book that uh, would be very, very helpful to any kind of physician or healthcare provider. But even in the new book, Near-Death Experiences, excuse me, <clears throat> and the rest of the story, um, there's a lot of things in there, too, that the medical people are just going to just catch right on to and, and uh, really be able to uh, notice and do something about it's like for instance um the and and you get this a lot with nurses they will be talking about you know in oncology or hospice or you know whatever these nurses are noticing that um people who are about to die or people who have near death experiences will talk a lot about the beings that come to visit the visitors, um, especially the people who are dying, and and they almost invariably come from the left. You know, you you get beings that come from the right too, and um, from down above, and maybe at the end of the bed. But but mostly they come in from the left, and it seems like at, at least what I get from the nursing community is about eighty to eighty eight percent of the patients say that the otherworldly beings come in uh, from the left. And when they die or when they leave or when they have an out-of-body experience or if it's in the case of a near-death experiencer, very often they leave to the left. And so I was talking with a lot of professional people about this, and they kind of poo-pooed any kind of otherworldly notion here because they said, well, you know, we we nurses are always trained to sit on the right-hand side of our patients and to deal with our patients always from the right. And so, of course, you know, if they're going to see anybody or anything, it's going to be to the left. Uh, but I started digging a little bit more in that because I was really puzzled. Okay, why why the left? 
and you know a lot of people who are masseuse um they'll talk about seeing things to the left usually in other uh, let's say it's a doctor on the other side who might be helping them that 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 uh invis- invisible being tends to come in through the left um you talk to very creative people especially sculptors and they talk about things that are going on on the sides, the far sides of their eyes, especially to the left. They'll pick it up from the sides of their eyes. Um, so I started doing a lot of checking. Okay, why left? Why are there so many reports? Certainly not all of them. But there's so many reports about stuff coming in from the left or people going out through the left. And And what I discovered just really surprised me. And what I discovered that our earth, in fact, all of creation favors the left. Now, let me explain that. All amino acids of all living things on planet earth twist to the left. There is not an exception. None of them twist to the right. They all move and twist to the left. In space, most of the spiral galaxies rotate to the left. In fact, if you're studying nature itself, nature favors anything that is left. It prefers the left. So um, I tend to feel now that in dying, we would naturally just flow to the left. I also tend to feel that those beings on the other side or the invisible ones um, would find it equally easy to uh, come in from the left. So um, I I really feel that this deserves not only a little bit more work, that is to say how many more healthcare providers are noticing this, but I also feel maybe a little bit more work with our intuitive people and our psychic people and our spiritual people uh, to see what they might say about the importance of left. Yeah, that would be interesting to find out what other people feel about that. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of uh, psychics and all, um, you know, I've known uh, a few people who have had near-death experiences, and they said when they've gone ahead and come back, they've noticed that uh, they have um, psychic abilities afterwards. Well, yeah. yeah have you noticed <laughs> that? Oh, yeah. Look, if you weren't psychic before, you become psychic after. If you were psychic before, you become very psychic after. It takes that intuitive, what some people call psychic abilities, intuitive abilities, it takes that and expands it uh, very, very, very much. It just, it just does. That That's part of the after effects. Um, you come back more intelligent. You come back more creative. Um, you come back uh, more feeling-oriented usually than you were before. And what other um, physical and emotional changes happen afterwards? 
Oh, well, you're asking a big one. <laughs> uh, well, with the, the physiological after effects, let me say that those center around um, a change in brain structure and brain function, often a change in uh, brain hemisphere dominance. What I mean by that is if you were left brain before, you tend to be more right-brained afterward. If you were right-brained before, you tend to be more left-brained afterward. It's almost as if the emphasis eventually is on becoming more whole-brained. So wherever you're deficient, that tends to be where the emphasis is afterward. There are changes in the nervous system, the digestive system, and skin sensitivity. Um, So if we want to be more specific here with the uh, physiological after effects, then uh, people come back much more sensitive to light, especially sunlight, and to sound. Uh, eventually their, your taste in music will change with most of them. What we found at near-death conferences, and I'm speaking in terms of INDS, I-A-N-D-S, the International Association for Near-Death Studies, uh, and you can just um, go to their website, www.iands.org, um, and, and what they have found at their conferences is that they ask film crews to either be in the back of the room or wait out in the hall because of the bright lights. And they also uh, keep the sound system down a little bit lower than you might have in in a typical conference because if, if there's really bright lights or really loud music, it will hurt the ears, um, even the whole body. It's, it's it's like you become very, very sound sensitive, and it, this translates as pain. So, you know, we try to keep it down. Um, electrical sensitivity, the, uh, 75% of my um, experiencers were displaying electrical sensitivity afterward. That means that you can't wear watches, <laughs> or if you do. What we found, interestingly enough, for those um, experiencers who are willing to um, uh, kind of experiment with this, they have found that if the watch is be- is uh, sun-powered, they can wear it. If it's battery-powered, they cannot. Uh, so the solar watches seem to work, but the battery-powered pa- uh, watches do not. Um, experiencers invariably look younger, act younger, more playful. With kids, it's just the opposite. They tend to look older and act and seem more mature. There are substantial changes in energy levels, uh, changes in thought processing, uh, you switch, You tend to s- uh, switch from sequential selective thinking to clustered abstracting. You know, that's where um, and, uh, everything comes in, the mind just sort of falls in the pot um, and up pops inside. And for, the la- for the life of you, you can't figure out where it came from. Um, that is clustered thinking. 
Everything comes in in clusters, and out pops insight. Uh, most geniuses, by the way, think in that manner. Uh, invariably, the individual comes back more intelligent than they were before. Um, and that intelligence, of course, can have many levels, not just thought. You can have emotional intelligence. You know, there's various types of intelligence. Um, but uh, this is a signature feature of the near-death experience. You know, the the average time without vital signs. So I'm speaking here, no breath, no heartbeat, no brainwave ac- activity either. So all three are flatlined, gone. Uh, the average time without vital signs is between 5 to 20 minutes. So that that's average. That That is not unusual. That is average. So what we find with these people is there is little or no brain damage. Now, there is brain damage in some cases, but it tends to be fairly light or not near as as severe as you would think it might be. And, in fact, of course, brain enhancement. And with kids, the jump in, in brain enhancement is, is, is quite spectacular. Uh, it's, it's like the younger the child, the greater the jump. And that's probably because... Uh, you know, the brain is still forming with these little ones. And so when you get that power punch or that that real shift that comes with a near-death experience, it really tends to accelerate um, the, the brain structure, uh, how the brain forms. Invariably, these kids come back just very much more intelligent, but the adults can too. You know, it, it it tends to change the brain for the better. And what about, um, you know, with religion and spirituality? Does that make a difference? Does it change for people after their experiences? In, in my research base, one-third stayed in their ch- church of choice. Uh, but in staying in their church of choice they invariably became movers and shakers. They wanted somehow to enliven the church, to lift the church, to somehow infuse the church with a new excitement and a new energy. They they tended to become a little bit more charismatic or, or certainly wanted to somehow have the church be more active, uh, more enthusiastic, more enlivened. Well, two-thirds left the church or never were a part of the church to begin with. And what and uh, what I've noticed with these people, they they tend to take on a personal relationship with God, and um, they just don't feel that a building of any kind, i.e. a church, is necessary or needed. And they, you know, walk away from that type of of activity. But you know, after about a, a decade or so, what I noticed with a lot of these people that say, you know, they're not interested in church anymore, they invariably come back. And they come back to some type of church environment. Usually it's something like a metaphysical church or a more open church. You know, some some of the d- divisions or departments, for instance, of the Episcopalian church. 
has, have, have become a lot more open than they used to be. They have guitar church services and this kind of thing. Um, so something like that that's more personal, that's more enlivened, that is more real in life, uh, that kind of worship service will be very interest, uh, interesting to an experiencer and will, uh, uh, you know, it tends to draw them, especially if that church has a labyrinth, uh, you know, and they can walk the labyrinth and they can get into these really sacred traditions that we have in our world. Uh, they very much want to do that or to start up some of their own. And even with uh, the Native Americans, you'll find a lot of experiencers drawn to, uh, for instance, the medicine wheel or Native American uh, worship. So they they want that richer, more personal uh, involvement. But as far as belief in God, oh, my goodness, um, almost to a person, not everybody, but almost to a person comes back Believing in God. Uh, well, no, not believing. They come back knowing God. You know, belief implies doubt. So very seldom will they use that word. They don't believe in God. They know God. And whether you want to use the term God or Allah or deity, um, some have a lot of problems with that kind of terminology they may call it the one, like the one mind or source. Uh, they might change uh, the phrase to um, to de- describe or depict this uh, one mind, this one source. But, you know, there, there's no getting around the fact that, you know, someone else is in charge besides them. <laughs> And they they very much are mindful of that. And uh, most of them, uh, in a very active way, certainly in a very personal way. Hey, what's your experience with um, everyone regarding, like, a heaven, hell, borderland? What uh, What's your experience with those? Well, you know, it's almost like, I call it the layer cake effect. Uh, it's like uh, once you cross over, there's all these layers, and and you're drawn to wherever it is you resonate best. Um, thinking in terms of vibration or oscillation or you know the vibratory, the degree of vibratory um, oscillation, uh-huh. you're 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 drawn there to that particular level. And uh, there seems to be, if you're going to use terms like heaven and hell, there seems to be like, you know, I'm fond of saying 12 heavens, 12 12 hells. Well, who's counting or how can you count? But, But again, that idea of lots of levels of what people might call the finer or the more pleasant worlds, Many people call it heaven. Uh, lots of layers of the most of the more dreadful or uninteresting or unpleasant worlds. That a lot of people call hell. Uh, but 
you know, when when you've worked with as many experiences as I have, which is thousands, uh, you begin to see that there is is no top and there is no bottom. Um, there's no such thing as being stuck in hell, and there's no such thing as being trapped in heaven. Uh, we've got an open-ended system here, and and so you can go through the various levels that are very unpleasant and come out and begin to build back up. In other words, there is such a thing as forgiveness or growth or learning. If you're willing to learn, if you're willing to surrender, you really can um, begin to build a better life and and uh, begin to move out of these more restrictive levels. But by the same token, if you're um, learning more, growing more, really living what you know to be true to the best of your ability, if you're sort of chalking up your brownie points, so to speak, in, in you know, in your you're you're ascending to even higher levels it seems to be that you can leave all kinds of structure and form and shape behind you and go into other places for lack of a better word that we don't have any description or knowledge of so there doesn't seem to be any end you know you can go uh, either way, and it's almost as if these levels, you could almost call them thought forms, um, a coagulation or um, a coherent mass that is formed around a particular vibration. It's sort of like a, a I think in terms of a of a radio you know, and the dial on the radio. And there's lots of different stations on that radio. And you can dial up or you can dial down. And that seems to be how it is. It's sort of like uh, there's all these different stations or all these different levels. And who's to say who flips the dial? Maybe it's you. Maybe it's your soul. Maybe it's guys or guardians. Maybe it's a uh, higher being um i don't know it, it seems to be different with different people but again who's to say flips that dial up or down um but you seem to go wherever it is that that pulls you or draws you or wherever you resonate best and it you know if if it's your time to sort of work things out, then you're going to get in the lower levels. If it's your time to uh, let go more and um, uh, begin to be open to even higher and finer levels, then you're going to go up that dial. And you also talk about the soul's agenda. Well, very much I can say that uh, if someone is in charge, if something is in charge, it seems to be the soul. It's like our soul seems to have its own will. Uh, 
you know, when we're talking about you, you know, Reverend Michael Carbone, where we're talking about a particular personality, we're talking about a, a particular individual with certain characteristics, but your soul, that higher part of you, you could call it your higher self, if you wanted to, uh, that particular mass that you really are is not Reverend Michael Carbone. That mass um, does not have a body. It's, it's currently living in one, you, but it's um, the soul uh, or the spirit, your spirit, your soul, is that finer, uh, more divine part of you. Uh, you know, we're going to take a, a brief uh, little extension here and and just sort of allow me to talk a little bit. Um, it, it seems to me like that's the real purpose of prayer and meditation and, and, and these various spiritual rituals and studies that we go through is so that we can become more in tune with our own soul. We begin to unify with our own soul. And when that happens, that's when there's real wisdom, that's when there's real insight, um, that's when we become, a lot of people say more spiritual. I think the word more spiritual is, is becoming kind of like a buzzword anymore. Uh, but it's certainly when we become, if you will, a better person. Um, it's, it's when we are, are then able to integrate or unify more with our own soul. Um, so if if you if you look at the soul as being its own kind of entity, its own kind of force field, its own kind of of signature or energy factor, uh, that does seem to be true. And the soul does indeed have a, a mind of its own. Um, among the many things I've learned in over the decades I've been in this kind of work, and also before I ever died, when I was working with um, psychic phenomena, altered states of consciousness, mystical states, tra uh, the transformational process, I was doing this kind of work long before I ever died. Um, I, I noticed then even that um, that that there is this higher part to us, and that the the soul seems to work or live or grow in cycles, and it seems to have uh, behave according to cycles move according to cycles. Let's say, for instance, the soul wanted to learn more about courage. It would plan in a lot of different lives that would examine courage from different angles. What is courage? How do you exhibit courage? Um, what is lack of courage? So it would examine courage, uh, courage again, from a lot of different angles. Then it, when it was through with that cycle, then it would plan in its next cycle. Um, we, we certainly do have soul clusters. We have soul groups. We have souls that tend to incarnate together um, or 
maybe not necessarily at the same time, but for the same purpose. Um, I would ad- I would advise people who want to explore that a little bit more, that idea, uh, to get my book, We Live Forever. It's a very small little book, but it gets into this idea of soul cycles, soul groups, and um, the idea of the soul. I know in my third near-death experience, well, actually, even in my second one, I was able to see um, how this works, and I talk about it a lot. Um, I, I finally, I finally, just a couple of months ago, Michael, just a couple of months ago, I decided, well, maybe it's time for me to, to put out my own little book about just my near-death experiences, my three near-death experiences. That's it. Not a memoir, just a little book about the experiences and the revelations I was given. So I did. And it <laughs> has this original title. It's called, I Died Three Times in 1977, The Complete Story. <laughs> How's that for an original title? I Died Three Times in 1977, um, The Complete Story. And that is available over Amazon.com. You can get it as an e-book or as a real book book. And it, it doesn't cost much at all. I think the e-book is something like, what is it? Two ninety five or three ninety five, something like that, and the book book is six ninety five. So you're not going to be paid. You're, you know, you're not going to pay out much. Uh, but in that book is the revelations I was given as I was standing at what I or uh, sort of hovering or floating or or being at what I believe to be the center point of creation. So those revelations about the soul, about God, about our progress, um, those are all in that little book. I was one of those people that could bring it back. Most experiencers are able to bring a little bit back of the revelations they were given, uh, but not all of them. I was able to bring mine back. Cool. Now, a lot of people say, um, you know, we have a lot of, um, a lot of our lives are predestined, planned. Now, did we? Do you think we planned the near-death experiences? Sort of like well, a way to get know, us back on track. That's a real tough one. Um, most experiencers will say, "I got what I needed," and 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 that's that that's their words. That's not mine. I got what I needed, and and so you you have to, as a researcher, respect that and say that somehow, some way, either this was planned or uh, drawn to them or somehow it fits in their life because it was the kind of experience they needed at that moment in their life where that kind of experience would make a real difference. So there does seem to be some kind of planning or vibrational draw. Now, how how long ago it was planned, you know, I mean, maybe it was something that just popped up because it was needed at that moment. Maybe it was something that was planned a long time ago. Maybe it was something that was planned before they're born. You know, I I, I find it very difficult to come out with any kind of absolute term 
or absolute knowledge of this is the way it is for everybody because I have found that that simply isn't true. Um, I used to be a hypnotherapist specializing in past life regressions way, 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 way back um, when I was younger. (laughs) And I found that there are some people or souls that are sort of shoved or kicked into this life and they didn't plan it at all. I mean, there was no planning on on when they were going to be born, when they're going to die, what's going to happen to them this time around. They didn't want to come in at all. Uh, they had no intention of coming in, and they sort of got shoved in, or they just sort of accidentally found themselves here, and were quite upset with the whole life and the whole arrangement because they didn't want it. Um, So, you know, they say there's no such thing as accidents. I kind of wonder about that because I've found um, a lot of things that make me wonder if if we can get the the instructions screwed up, (laughs) if you'll allow me to use that terminology, if somehow we can screw things up or if somehow we can mess things up. In in other words, I don't think it's always smooth, and I don't think we can always be very judgmental when we say this is the way it happens. Um, Maybe that's the way it happens for most people, but I can't say that that's the way it's going to happen for everybody. And I don't think anybody else can say that either. Yeah, uh, everyone has their own reasons for being here. Yeah, uh, you know, everybody has their own reasons for being here, yes. Um, But how that works, I'm not so sure anybody really knows. We can all keep on guessing. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, we look for these patterns, and certainly the patterns speak very loudly. So we can assume that something like that occurs. But I don't think that we can be so bold as to say it always happens one way or another way. Um, I, I think there's a lot of escape clauses. <laughs> yeah, and uh, one other question, because, you know, same week just at Easter. What about Jesus? What Did people, Jesus? you know, people reported, you know, meeting him or, you know, or not meeting him? Well, you know, this is something I tackle in the book. And I and I and I truly feel we have to tackle this. Because a lot of people are met when I say a lot of people, a lot of um in especially from the industrialized nations are met by Jesus. So we're speaking Canada, the United States, Europe, Australia, Uh, the more industrialized nations will be met by Jesus. And some people come out with one understanding of Jesus. Some people come out with another. There's a lot of conflict in the stories. Now, case in point, what's happening right now in the United States, we've got these two books out by children who had near-death experiences. One of them was an eight-year-old boy. His father was a pastor He was um, 
you know, sort of grew up in the church, so to speak, goes to Sunday school all the time, had a near-death experience. And then when he's talking about it afterward to his dad, he what he talks about matches what his dad preaches. Yeah, I heard now, about that Now, we can, we can do out-of-the-mouth-of-babes kind of thing, but even with children, you have to kind of look to see how much coloration and and languaging they might be borrowing from their environment or their culture or their family. Now we've got, and it's kind of true of the other little boy too. And and then there, we have a, a child in Portland, Oregon, a girl who had a near-death experience, a recent one, and very very similar figures in hers, but she calls them very different ways. She describes them very different ways. And so the media, as the media's uh, want to do, says one contradicts the other. Well, they don't really contradict each other. Uh, if you're a trained observer analyst like myself, you'll notice the child's family, the child's family life, uh, what happened before the near-death experience, and you'll recognize that the child is being true to their part of the world and their way of looking at life, uh, the kind of words they're familiar with. It's, It's the same experience, but it's described in different manners, has slightly different elements, and again, how these elements are described. So in the book, Near-Death Experiences, The Rest of the Story, I really climb into this. You know, uh, one person over here in Israel will talk about Jesus one way, another person over here in Africa will talk about Jesus another way, and then a person over here in Oklahoma We'll talk about Jesus in another way, and it. Hey, folks, it's the same Jesus, uh, but they're describing the heaven worlds and and the various uh, angels and truths and understandings somewhat differently, and sometimes very differently. Um, so let's take a look at this. And so in in the book. I, I ask people, okay, what is it that you believe? So so we take a look at beliefs. Then we look specifically at, at two churches or two different religions and how they grew. And one is, is Christianity and the other one is Islam. And it, it's, a, it's a very brief look at both of them. Um, I couldn't go in depth because of the you know, size of the book. Um, but if but if you go back in history, um, you can't help but start screaming at what exists of what we know of for the beginnings of the Bible, for the beginnings of Christianity, um, how that all began to form and come together, and 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 you find that it, it came together very very differently than what we are taught. And, of course, the Bible itself was written, uh, you know, decades long, long after Jesus had died. 
and and you you find a lot of discrepancies also with Islam. And Islam today is based on translations of translations of translations. So where's the true where's the true Quran? Um, so there's a lot of questioning you can do on both sides, and I do that. But then I say to people, even those who have met Jesus, and I was one of them in my second near-death experience, even those who have been visited by Jesus, uh, let's take a look at the whole experience and how it affected you. And when we do that, what we're beginning to recognize is a Christ consciousness or that idea of that larger, more open, more loving consciousness, uh, which many of us today call the Christ consciousness, that what seems to be at, at work or at foot throughout all the religions of the world is this type of consciousness. And, of course, the different places on our planet use different names. They won't necessarily call it Christ consciousness, but again, this idea of this incredible consciousness that, or presence that people are visited by that literally change, changes their life. This presence is very real. It's very powerful. It's very physical. It's not anybody's imagination. It's not a dream. It's not a vision. It is a real physical power. And uh, that power can be wrapped in a number of different forms. And sometimes we might call that form Buddha. Sometimes we might call that form Christ. Sometimes we might call that form Mohammed uh, or Muhammad. Uh, sometimes we might call that f form by, by yet another name. But it's still a living presence. And uh, I think it behooves us to 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 really be honest here and say, what is it that's coming through? Is it the hierarchy of angels headed off by Gabriel? Or are we looking at powers and essences that are so um, above and beyond what words can describe that these essences, these powers, that consciousness that takes that form, that has that name in certain cultures, that power, that's what we need to look at because that's what is transforming our lives. So this is definitely an interesting journey that we're on. Oh, yeah. yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> so um, is science changing and um, understanding a little bit and being able to prove uh, about um, the existence of other dimensions and all? Well, because of new research techniques, and new ways of handling the, these kinds of subjects, science definitely is 
delving more and deeper into uh, what we might call spirituality or the sacred um, science and the spiritual truly are coming together more and more. Uh, In the field of near-death studies, uh, the finest researcher we have out now, as far as I'm concerned, is Dr. Pim Van Lommel. He's a Dutch cardiologist, and he has the book... um, See, what's the name of it? Beyond Consciousness, I think is the name of it. Something very similar to that. Look for the name Pim, P-E-I-M, Pim Van Lommel, uh, L-O-M-M-E-L. I think it's Beyond Consciousness. Um, and, and it's just, you know, if you want science, that is just a breathtaking book. And, and he's done the best out there. But... I'm the lone wolf out here on the edges saying, look, folks, we have got to change how we're doing our research. We need to work in teams now. We need to bring in our bioengineers. We need to bring in our priests and our ministers. We need to bring in our shamans. We need to bring in our neurolinguistics. We need to bring in all of these different modalities and disciplines uh, not just the kind of science we've had in the past not just the medical people we've got to enlarge um, the teamwork and and we and you know uh, because of the kinds of things we're finding and what's implied by what we're finding and I'm, you know, I'm I'm just very upfront by saying that that the near current near death research is in danger of losing its soul. It really is, because we're 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 uh, depending more and more on the internet. We're depending more and more on questionnaires. We're depending more and more on on previous studies, and we're not doing enough field work. We are losing our contact with the voices of the experiencers. We're losing one-on-one contact. And, you know, that's where it is. It's with the people. It's with their eyes. You know, the forever that's in everybody's eyes. Um, We cannot lose that that personal uh, contact and that personal observation and we're starting to, and it's because of you know the certain scientific protocols, and with the internet now, the different ways that we can handle cases, and we're 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 we're, we're, we're losing it. We we've got to get back to and enlarge what we previously did one on one. Well, hopefully, with all the information and the research you've done, we can. Uh Definitely do some changes. Well, I hope a lot of people consider it a kick in the seat of the pants. You know, I, I really want to say, now look, guys, enough of this. You know, we got to get busy and well, do our work. And what's the easiest way that everyone can get a hold of you? Uh, my website, which is just my name dot com. So it's www.pmh at water. That's just at and then water. Dot com. So it's pmhatwater.com. 
Well, cool, because we have run out of time. Woo! And like, <laughs> yes, and like last time, it is such a pleasure to talk to you and have you on my show again. Oh, well, you're sweet. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> well, we'll definitely have to have you back on again and continue this conversation because it's very um, enlightening, uh, to say the least, and gives us hope for, you know, the other side and what we can experience. You betcha. Thank you, dear. You have yourself a wonderful evening. Yes, and uh, many, many blessings to the entire listening audience. Thank you. You're welcome, dear. Yeah, many blessings to you. Good night. Bye-bye. Oh, yes, everybody. Well, thank you for tuning in. And don't forget, check out BeTheLightRadio.com. We are switching over within about another month. We're going to be doing some dual broadcast testing, better sound quality, a lot more interactive chat room, Google Calendar, so much more. you got to check it out. And don't forget, BeTheLightMetaphysicalShop.com for all your herbs and teas. And until next time, everyone, know that you are loved because God loves you and so do I. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time.